This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. How can we think of indigenous knowledge systems as a paradigm for research methodology? With me are Elizabeth Sumida Huaman and Nathan Martin to discuss their new co-edited volume entitled Indigenous Knowledge Systems and Research Methodologies, Local Solutions and Global Opportunities. Navigating the interplay of multiple knowledges and research paradigms can be extremely beneficial. Elizabeth Sumida Huaman is an Associate Professor of Comparative and International Development Education in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Nathan Martin is an Associate Professor of Justice and Social Inquiry in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Elizabeth Sumida Huaman and Nathan Martin, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. We appreciate you making space for us this morning. It's great to be here, Will. Thank you. So today I want to talk about your new book, which uh, looks a lot at indigenous knowledge systems and research methodologies in particular. And so in the book, you say that not all research by indigenous people is indigenous research and not all research on indigenous communities is indigenous research. So it made me wonder, you know, how would we even begin to define what indigenous research is? So thank you, Will. I think that's a really great question. When we refer to indigenous research and uh, we're referring to a particular methodology here. So what Nathan and I have been trying to do is to add to the array of research worldviews. And so in the way that, you know, researchers might think of, you know, feminist methodologies, queer methodologies, transformative methodologies, you know, social constructivist approaches to research. What we're trying to do is to create a space that has actually been carved out over the last two decades or so by senior Indigenous scholars and community members working together in Indigenous communities to establish what we now understand to be a field of indigenous research methodologies. So this is a worldview for how we think about the significance of research, how we think about the significance of the questions that we're asking, how we understand um, the way in which we want to approach the research design. Um, So there's some very technical aspects to it, but I think what's really critical to acknowledge is that Indigenous research methodologies have always been around. So we're talking about Indigenous knowledge systems for millennia that had to ask questions in order to be able to live and thrive in their environments, as well as to adapt to different kinds of changes, whether human uh, made changes, whether environmental, natural world shifts. So we're talking about a very old and indigenous methodologies as being rooted in very old indigenous uh, knowledge systems and cosmologies. When we say that not all research that is conducted by indigenous researchers is indigenous research, nor is research all research that is conducted with indigenous communities indigenous research, what we mean by that, and we're really referring to, you know, the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. So we're referring to the scholars like Cora Weber Pilwax and uh, Linda Smith, Graham Smith, numerous other scholars who we name in the book and whose work we draw from. 
we're talking about research that is in many ways attempting to understand the condition of coloniality. So when we talk about coloniality, we're utilizing a Latin American theoretical framework that comes from really intellectual partnerships between Latin American scholars and Indigenous community members, as well as Indigenous Latin American scholars. Um, and I'm thinking very specifically of Anibal Quijano, Walter Mignolo, as well as others who have written about this notion of what it is that we are all a part of right now. So when we talk about what it is that we are all a part of, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, they are referring to this framework of coloniality that occupies four domains. And Mignolo and Medina Tlastanova refer to this as the colonial matrix of power. And these four domains are characterized by a struggle over economy, which includes addressing land exploitation, labor exploitation, struggle over institutions. These can be legal structures, militarization, you know, structures of authority, essentially, struggles over knowledge and subjectivity, which is really our area of interest, is, is how knowledge is defined, how it is regulated, how it is controlled, how it is produced, who decides what gets transmitted. And then the fourth domain is a struggle over normativity. So even the idea of what constitutes a normative life and what constitutes a family or, or a social, sociocultural identity. So in many ways, indigenous research methodologies situated in a context of coloniality are attempting to understand what it is that has been done to us and how we participate in this system. That's one aspect of it. But on the other aspect of it, you know, what we're referring to as well with indigenous research methodologies is this idea that, that we are also engaged in decolonial efforts and decolonial not to be confused with decolonizing. So decolonizing is a very specific political economic process, but we're talking about decolonial ways of being and thinking and understanding the world. And much of our knowledge um, and our framework comes from indigenous scholars who practice and live this, like Aymara scholar, sociologist, uh, Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui, as well as, and I mentioned her earlier, Cora Weber Pilwax, you know, people who talk about you can have these decolonizing ideas, but you also have to have a decolonizing practice. Similarly, we can have notions of what is decolonial, meaning how do we think differently um, in, this, in this time than what has been handed to us by the colonizer, but we also have to have a decolonial practice. And we believe that indigenous research is decolonial practice. And you'll also get a number of lots of indigenous and non-indigenous scholars who for decades have talked about indigenous research methodologies as rooted in indigenous self-determination. So this notion of how do people and what do people decide for their lives, how do they want to live their lives, as well as linked with indigenous self-development. So self-determination linked with self-development, meaning how do they make these decisions and what do they want to do over time? And so indigenous research methodologies have some very strong foundations in this, these approaches to, to really understanding where we are and, and also where we want to be. Are there differences between, you know, taking a decolonial lens and perspectives and practice and indigenous research, or are they synonymous in many ways? 
I, I think an issue that we're trying to, to convey in the book is that uh, this distinction between methods and methodology, I think, is uh, a key theme uh, that resonates through the, the different contributions. Uh, and a, a goal of the volume, again, is to kind of assert indigenous methodology as a important paradigm more broadly that we should take seriously, that like has its history as coherent, is potentially powerful, uh, uh, rooted in these clear principles, uh, like emphasizing healing, mobilization, social transformation as well. So it's going to also kind of share a lot of emphases with various kind of critical paradigms. Uh, so decolonial theory and theorizing more broadly there's going to be a lot of overlap. They're going to draw inspiration from one another. But I think the focus, as Ellie mentioned, on self-determination of being paramount is a distinguishing feature. Though like I must qualify that I'm very much aspiring to, to, to be an ally in this debate. I'm very happy to, to listen and support, but uh, I'm not uh, by any ways uh, like a leading voice in this topic. So I'll pass, pass it on to my colleague who is. Yeah. Nathan, <laughs> you're very kind. I think one aspect that we're attempting to uh, convey, and this is the reason why the organization of the book is as it is, and we have all of these different sections where we really attempted to highlight some conversations that our author colleagues have been involved in for a very long time. And that isn't to say that each section confines those themes or topics, but rather the ways in which as a whole those themes come together. Because one of the critical aspects, if, we're, if we want to dive a little bit deeper, so we can go very deep into coloniality, we can go very deep into decoloniality, we can think critically about the relationship between how we understand decolonization and indigenous research, the academy, and the uh, knowledge production, as well as the knowledge economy. And we can also go very deep into indigenous self-determination and self-development. And if I were to take that aspect of indigenous self-determination and self-development, and this is something that Nathan and I came together on very clearly, and I think really worked harmoniously together on this in agreement, is that when we think about indigenous self-development and self-determination, what we're also looking at is what do communities need in order to sustain themselves? And communities need scientists, they need educators. Today, they need attorneys. They need a number, they need artists, they need poets, they need writers, right? Communities need all kinds of people. And what we're really referring to then is this notion that we mention in the book of a holistic approach to community development and ecological planning in which humans engage all of the different aspects and identities that they could be, that they want to be, that the communities need and desire. So how does indigenous research, research design, as well as the methodologies that inform that design, how does it help us, how do those things help us to, to move towards these comprehensive holistic community designs that we so need? If we're going to talk about indigenous nationhood or if we're going to talk about collectivities and ideas of community, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, autonomous communities need those people. And so what are the ways in which those people approach research 
and think about their work in relation to the whole. Hmm. So how do they do it? I mean, given, you know, the book brings together so many different voices, different, you know, young and established researchers all together in one edited collection. So, you know, what are some of the different approaches that some of these scholars have pioneered or utilized in in some actual research that might be considered, you know, indigenous research? One of the things that I think is reflects the richness of the volume is the fact that, you know, in the way that Nathan expresses himself, you know, he expresses himself with a lot of humility to say, I am not an indigenous person, but I have spent time with indigenous students in communities over the last eight years or so, nine years, and I'm interested in these kinds of issues. And when invited, I have something to say. And our students are from, you know, our students as well as the authors in the, in the book, all of the contributors are from indigenous communities or work very closely and extensively with indigenous communities for forever. <laughs> I think the richness of what they bring is never to say, look what we're doing. You know, let's take Sweeney Winchief's chapter, for example. He is an Assiniboine or Nakota scholar from Montana who's utilizing Kanaka Maoli theories or approaches towards understanding indigenous epistemology and how the mind, body, and spirit are connected in learning, um, which really individualizes learning. It places the microscope on, on the person and their learning process. And he's saying, here's what I've been taught by Manu Meyer, who's Kanaka Maoli, an amazing and brilliant scholar. And here are the questions that it provoked me to consider in my own homelands and looking at my own cultural practices and my own understanding of what is knowledge, what is knowing, and what is understanding. So I think that's the richness is these connectivities that they all, all of the authors are saying, what is it that is being done in other places from which I can take inspiration questions, examples, and what are the ways in which I then can turn around? And with that same kind of humility that I think Nathan embodies, what are the ways in which I can then turn around and very humbly ask additional questions? And I think that that's one of the perhaps pillars of, of indigenous research is the role and the positionality of the researcher, the ways in which the researcher acknowledges uh, sources of knowledge and inspiration and the value systems that researchers hold, which in one of our chapters, uh, Porter Swensel, who is Tewa from Santa Clara Pueblo, talks about researcher values. And really how does all of that comprehensively come together when we think about what is it that our communities need and what is our place in asking those kinds of questions? So Nathan, I, I wanna bring you in here. You know, It would be great to hear your experience and your thoughts on I, I guess what Elizabeth is sort of is beginning to talk about here is the interplay of knowledges, right? And how there's different knowledge systems that people move through, and particularly those educated, you know, in particular ways outside of indigenous communities, and then going and learning from indigenous communities and working with people who are indigenous researchers. I, I'd be interested to know how did how have you managed this sort of interplay of knowledges, and you know, how do you find the value in it, and how do you balance your own research work? that from my understanding, you know, you're a sociologist of education and you do a lot of work with quantitative data. So how does this all fit in with, you know, what have you learned in a sense from indigenous research methodologies? I, mean, I think as I've become more acquainted with uh, this 
this kind of way of thinking, this, this, this body of work. It's helped clarify concerns I've had that are more long-standing with how to engage in social research but avoid the pitfalls of, of positivist thinking and orientations. Even if you're trying to adopt a, like a, a posture or a theoretical framework that is very critical of these established kind of normal scientific kind of ways of evaluating evidence and drawing conclusions, we're still left with many of the same tools uh, to understand the social world that were developed at the same time. That they, These were tools to justify eugenics are still being used to understand the landscape of social inequality in hope of developing policy or intervention to, to address it uh, or redress. Um, so I found kind of the how uh, thoughtful indigenous methodologies and, and like the pioneering work in this area are about this distinction between methods and methodologies uh, very helpful to my own thinking more broadly about well how can I engage in social scientific practice but not kind of just serve to, to kind of reproduce this very hard distinction between the researcher and subject or a make sure we empower communities uh, through our work, that it's very much uh, public-oriented in uh, both its, its outcome and its implementation. And I think thinking about how to do that with quantitative work has lessons more broadly for methods training like generally. Uh, so a recent book by Chris Anderson and Maggie Walter uh, titled Indigenous Statistics, I found like really helpful and thinking about how to bridge like what I knew from from my training, which is is rather conventional, rather traditional sociological methods training, to the kind of work I wanted to do uh, that, that can play a role in a broader project of of social transformation and community empowerment. Uh, and I think making it very explicit how no matter what methods you're choosing, one's personal standpoint the theoretical frameworks uh, that one uses are still going to play an important role, even if kind of the, all the sins of quantitative research may be more evident. Uh, so the essentializing capacity, the, uh, the fact that we, it makes people either visible or invisible, like the counting through these projects like the census, not only just provides a, a surface count of how many people, but literally determines who counts, who's deserving of a full personhood uh, in the eyes of the state. Uh, and this goes back centuries. It's from, like, they're inextricable. Uh, statistics was designed as, as instruments of state power from their inception. Uh, so to think about, well, what can they still be useful? Well, of course, I think uh, it's also kind of dispelling myths that indigenous methodology is anti-empirical. No, it's it's how these pieces of evidence and information are used and, and why uh, that's more important. So it helps thinking about this as an individual researcher makes me be more thoughtful and reflective in the kinds of questions I will ask. And like a lot of the inspiration I got is from students. I mean, they, Ellie and I mentioned, like our work with in, indigenous students, and they have more 
experience on the topic than anything I could provide in a seminar. I mean, they, they already know the important parts. They want to make a difference and engage in this research enterprise, but in a way that's not contradictory to the important value systems that they come to the, the, the field of research with. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up students because obviously, you know, one of the things that you, you mention in your book is how there is a bit of a struggle teaching indigenous research methodologies inside, you know, American universities. And I would imagine the same is true in some of the universities here in the UK. You know, so are courses in indigenous research methodologies or at least, you know, is indigenous research methods and methodologies even mentioned in typical methods courses in university in, in America, in PhD courses in America? Is this a is this common or, you know, is this like this new area that still hasn't been adopted by by many courses? So I think that's a great question regarding what actually exists, what actually is available to students now, what kinds of resources in terms of coursework, you know, professional training, as well as resources, you know, material resources are available to students to to put into practice whatever they might be learning. So I think there's lots of different ways in which tertiary indigenous institutions have been engaged in these kinds of questions and have been looking at, and perhaps they're not calling them indigenous research methodologies. They may not be calling them that, you know, so we want to be really clear that we're not trying to capitalize on a term here that then turns into something that's limiting, you know, this idea that it, that it's owned or that the concept in, in any way can be controlled or that it should be regulated by some body. The only bodies that probably should regulate knowledge, transmission, sharing, and exchange that takes place in indigenous research are between the researchers and the communities and their participants. But, you know, in terms of we're not trying to coin anything new here, so we would like to acknowledge that there are tertiary indigenous edu education institutions, probably as well as indigenous schools, where there are teachers from communities who speak their languages, who are working with students on lots of different modes of inquiry and really thinking about what are the ways in which we can ask questions that relate somehow to the well-being of our people. So again, they may not be calling that indigenous research methodologies or methods, but they have some approach and probably some languaged way of conceptualizing what it is that they're doing. Now, when we talk about mainstream institutions, which I think is more, uh, speaks more to your question, indigenous research methodologies are not considered a dominant paradigm or one of the dominant paradigms. And I think that's probably for a number of different reasons. You know, um, we tend to have in mainstream universities across mainstream communities, the idea of compartmentalizing lots of different populations. So this notion that if you are doing indigenous research or whatever you call indigenous research methodologies, that that, that means that's only for indigenous people and, and they're over there somewhere, <laughs> you know, some distant place or some foreign place or some esoteric or mystical or exotic, you know, population that you're working with or, you know, that you're engaged in mystical, esoteric and exotic questions, you know. And I think that, you know, we, we give a, a lot of acknowledgement to scholars like Sonia Adelaide, who is an Ojibwe archaeologist who really asks 
critical questions regarding how Indigenous research methodologies transcend Indigenous community boundaries and what are the ways in which they can be taken up in lots of different places. And I think what we're asking for is self-representation and visibility, that Indigenous research challenges researchers and communities, um, the so-called researched, to really rethink the power dynamics that are involved um, in, in what it means to conduct research. So to, to actually do research and, and create research design and then to think about the purposes and what you do with it, as Nathan had mentioned. But we find that that is a struggle in universities. And in many ways, it's also because if you have non-Indigenous instructors, there's a discomfort with the material. And sometimes it comes from fear of the unknown. Sometimes it comes from a fear of the possibility of misrepresenting. I have a lot of students who are non-Indigenous who are concerned with appropriation and very conscientious of that. And I think that 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 speaks to our time and the current generation that we're in where people are really interested in positionality and they're also really interested in breaking barriers that these meta-narratives have crafted in ways that have been really destructive. And our students, I think, are also really conscientious about how they exacerbate problems um, created under conditions of coloniality. So I think all around there are some sticky areas, you know, regarding how you think about the incorporation of indigenous research methodologies in university settings. But I also think that these are challenges that that can be overcome by working directly with communities. Every institution in the United States is either on or adjacent <laughs> or near Indian lands. And so we're talking about universities that also have an obligation to uphold, in, in the case of my institution, the University of Minnesota, to uphold their land grant status and what some have referred to as land grab status. So when you talk about how or if indigenous research methodologies could find space in classrooms, we actually have to dig much deeper and we also have to talk about the, the relationship of institutions, these institutions, to local indigenous communities upon whose lands they sit, as well as the ways in which those universities participate in coloniality and how indigenous research can help them to see themselves and to interrupt those processes that have been so harmful in those areas and elsewhere. It seems like a lot of these institutions, mainstream institutions, there needs to be a new, I guess the word might be historical memory. It seems as if a lot of the memory of the uh, American settler colonialists coming in and, and taking land and then building institutions you know, that memory is, is in many ways gone. And in, in some respects, it sounds as if you're saying, we need to re-remember that. We need to sort of engage with what that means and then use that memory to act in different ways going forward. That's right. And there are a lot of institutions now worldwide that are acknowledging the lands, the ancestral lands, and the peoples upon, upon which, uh, you know, the university was really built, um, the people's sacrifice. And so you'll see in a lot of email signatures at um, conference functions, people will get up and they will, before they even introduce themselves, 
they will um, acknowledge the space and the territories. And I think those are some really symbolic ways of acknowledging that there has been a silencing, a deliberate silencing and a deliberate forgetting of what has happened in these spaces. At the same time, if lots of indigenous scholars, so certainly not, we're not the first, you know, indigenous scholars and allies have talked about this for a while now since this became a trend, that at the same time, if it's not married with some sort of practice, if it's not married with some sort of perhaps decolonizing practice and making space for decolonial approaches that come from indigenous peoples and communities, such as what I think we're striving to do with, um, with indigenous research and the kinds of questions that, that researchers are asking. If it's not married with some kind of practice, then, then what does it really mean? So I think that indigenous research methodologies and the incorporation, the acknowledgement, the recognition that there are instruments, there are tools, there are resources, there are worldviews, and there's something deeper there that people can draw from in order to think about how they can actually put into effect the acknowledgements that they've been giving. That really hits on, I think, some of the goals that we had for, for the volume of making these issues more visible, like provide a kind of a space for the well, potentially uncomfortable moment that you have to go through uh, to just kind of engage in this type of work uh, to make it uh, both visible and then kind of prepare yourself for the hard work uh, to come because these are this is not knowledge create production for knowledge sake the, the hallmark of indigenous research is its role in community empowerment and healing and self-determination uh, so I like, uh, hope we were able to play a, a small part in this but it's it's definitely a we have centuries of silence it's not going to turn a corner immediately. Uh, but I, I think see signs uh, for optimism. I see it at my own home institution, Arizona State, where I think we're becoming more and more clear the debt we owe to the those who uh, were uh, such great stewards of the land uh, uh, for so long that provided the infrastructure necessary for a vibrant metropolitan area to, to grow in and, and develop. I mean, we saw it just in this last uh, election. Uh, so it didn't get the headlines, but uh, uh, the three counties that comprise the Hopi tribe and Navajo Nation had exceptional turnout, 89% turnout that went something like 97% uh, for Biden. Uh, so that accounted a net of about 72,000 votes where Biden's leading the state by just 17,000. So without like the political power and will of our native communities, like the election would have gone differently, but that's not what we see in the headlines. So this important work, too long going unacknowledged uh, and forgetting how we all benefit from this important work. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, the future of the, the earth depends on us becoming better connected to like, appreciate how how we all fit in this space so there's so much that indigenous methodology can provide the academy more broadly uh, and just improve how we like uh, relate to one another that we hope we can start a, a kind of a conversation and uh, spark some thinking and uh, motivation somewhere well, well I can say that I for one will be giving 
my students here at the IOE some of the chapters from this book because it what I loved particularly is that every chapter has these objectives and then questions at the end and it becomes this really really nice pedagogical tool to engage in conversations even if you might not know the context so well and so I just want to say thank you for producing this book writing this book um, I do actually think it's going to be very valuable, you know, even if it's a small piece of a much larger struggle. I, I want to just say thank you for writing it and producing it because I do think it's a great resource for, for so many people that have to teach methods courses, uh, you know, across universities in around the world. So Elizabeth Sumita Huaman and Nathan Martin, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure to talk today. Yeah, yeah thank you. This has been a a joyful conversation. I very much appreciated it. Thank you so much for having us, Will. And if I could just say thank you very much to our authors as well, our contributing authors. Um, as you noted, they crafted each chapter lovingly and thoughtfully. And each piece reflects um, generations of, of where they come from and who they are, and also reflects the the aspirations, the dreams, and the hopes of, of their communities and the people that care about their communities. Elizabeth Sumida Huaman is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota, and Nathan Martin is an associate professor at Arizona State University. Their new co-edited book is entitled Indigenous Knowledge Systems and Research Methodologies. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Baba, Fatih Octus, and Ing Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.